This is The Global Gambit. In The Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy and current affairs. Each episode, your host, Piotr Kurzin, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists and policymakers. Seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us and question and critically analyse these matters. This is The Global Gambit. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome back to The Global Gambit. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much time with pleasantries and um, sort of introductions other than um, just buckle in for this one, because uh, I think it's going to be one heavily of an episode, uh, because I'm absolutely delighted to have, be hosting a, a conversation with the, the well-renowned uh, Professor Fukuyama, Professor Francis Fukuyama, who, uh, as I'm sure many of us will know, uh, the author of The End of History and The Last Man, but someone who has done uh, since so much other things as well and become a... Um, uh, frankly, uh, a central figure in in, in polit- political thought, uh, political science, international relations, geopolitics, democratization, and a broader uh, broader array of other things relating to uh, to these areas of of theory, but also practice. Uh, if you're not familiar, I think it's important to keep in mind that we're talking in a, in a moment where the world is 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 arguably in a huge inflection point uh, with many sizable seismic events happening simultaneously, the remnants of COVID-19, the invasion of Ukraine. But now, only in the past less than a week, the visit of Nancy Pelosi, um, House of Representatives Speaker, to uh, to Taiwan, the most senior uh, member of the United States government to visit uh, for over 25 years. And as we can see from the events just today, but more broadly, um, just from China's rhetoric. So I'm going to jump straight into it, Professor. Thank you very much for joining us. And I think my first question is, you know, well, I could go in an exhaustive amount of directions, but I don't want to start with your book, because earlier this year you released, uh, you know, your latest book, Liberalism and Its Discontent. And you've written a lot about liberalism. And uh, I, I, I remember reading an article in preparation for this about, you know, you admit within the book as well that some things have gone wrong in the in the liberalist approach as as someone who studied international relations theory just to outline it for our listeners both on the podcast but in live time is liberalism is one of the two prevailing theories of of international relations along with realism the idea being that states are self-interested uh they act in a degree of survivalism in a state of anarchy because there is no overarching sort of global governance the only difference being predominantly is that liberalism believes in the idea of international cooperation and that the idea of multilateralism being possible whilst realism doesn't believe that as such. It's a very crude outline, but if you're listening, I hope you get the gist. So, Professor, I'm just very curious to hear from you initially. You know, since 2008, largely, you could say we've had many um, moments such as the uh, the Afghan war, the Iraqi war, uh, the expectation by uh, the West for China and Russia to sort of just mould to the international liberalist order. But I think a lot of people agree that it was the global financial crisis that was a real moment where faith in globalization, neoliberal economics, that sort of thing began to fracture and wane. And we've also had that coincide with, you know, an emboldened Russia, a, a China that has shifted into wolf warrior diplomacy and sort of led to, including many other elements that I'm obviously going to be overlooking, a sort of perfect storm and a, and a, a, a feeling of disenfranchisement with liberalism at the moment. So as you, as you see it now, as you see it in 2022, but given in the past five days even, 
where do you think about liberalism as it stands now in the context of realism as well and, and, and the prevailing way that the states are going to be you know, conducting themselves? Well, uh, I don't want to make this too academic a discussion right at the beginning, but I think that uh, I'm less interested in liberalism as a species of IR theory uh, than as a governing doctrine, uh, you know, for a society. I mean, domestic liberalism has certain implications uh, for the way that liberal states deal with one another, but I don't think that it necessarily needs to bring all the baggage of, you know, liberalism and IR theory with it. <clears throat> but what I'm, you know, what I'm more interested in is a regime that basically tries to limit the power of government over individuals through a rule of law, you know, through constitutional checks and balances, uh, does that for a number of reasons. I mean, you know, the first reason is just a pragmatic one, that this is the way you govern diverse societies. Liberalism originated out of the wars of religion in Europe, uh, and it was based on this realization that if you aim for the good life, you're not going to have life at all because people will kill each other in pursuit of that good life. And so that was, you know, a very pragmatic reason for wanting to live in a liberal society. Second one really had to do with the moral basis of liberalism. It, it's a system designed to protect individual autonomy, uh, which I think runs very deep in our understanding of what it means to be a full human being. And then finally, it's connected to property rights, to the freedom to transact. And so therefore, it's been associated with economic growth and development. And that system, you know, was so prevalent after 1945 that I think everybody basically took it for granted. I mean, everybody was a liberal uh, to the point where they didn't even have to think about it and didn't even have to define what that meant to them. But, you know, the system has been under considerable pressure and uh, attack from both the right and the left. I think right now the attack from the right is, is a bigger one. Uh, I mean, if you look around the world, uh, you know, you had Samuel Huntington's third wave of democratization that began in the early 1970s. We went from about 35 to maybe 115 countries that could plausibly be called liberal democracies in some sense. And we've been going backwards now for the last 16, 17 years. And so it's not just Russia and China, you know, it's populist movements in the United States, in India, in Turkey. Hungary, Poland, that have challenged the liberal domestic order. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's criticisms of uh, liberalism itself as a fundamental set of ideas. And I think that's really the challenge, because I believe that there isn't actually a better way of organizing societies that's going to lead to better peace and, you know, better respect for human dignity than a liberal society. And yet, you know, here we are uh, with authoritarian governments that are pushing the boundaries, that are escaping the rule of law, that are behaving, you know, arbitrarily. Uh, and that, you know, extends all the way from great power geopolitics to, you know, the way that Americans increasingly are dealing with each other on a, on a personal basis. Absolutely. And one of the things you mentioned there makes me think of, and again, preparation for our discussion, I was looking at Freedom House and when they first began collecting data in the 70s, much of the globe was was pretty unfree. <laughs> but from what I can see looking at data from this year and more recently, though, it depends. Interestingly, some states in their eyes, like India, have regressed. Russia has regressed in uh, China. 
But in other parts of the globe, say Latin America or even specifically East Africa, they, they've seen a partial improvement. So it seems to be that depending upon where you look in the globe, be it the global south and specific elements of the global south, there's a, there's a, there is a real toing and froing with the relationship of democracy. And, and this leads me to my next question for you, which is for much of the past 25 years, particularly the idea of liberal democracy, uh, specifically liberal democracy has been the prevailing narrative. But as we've seen from Poland, Hungary, Turkey, to a certain extent, uh, even India a little bit increasingly these days under Modi, uh, democracy is less is less and less necessarily defined with liberal demo- with liberalism. So, where do you see democracy and liberal liberal ideas being, in the sense that we have more countries that are sort of uh, making their own versions of it? So, liberalism and democracy are mutually supportive and often go together as a package, but they're they're separate ideas and and they are instantiated in, in different institutions, right? So liberalism really is about a rule of law that limits state power and protects the rights of individuals, whereas democracy uh, is, you know, expressed in institutions that allow popular choice uh, and accountability of leaders. And you can have liberalism without democracy. You know, some people would say that Singapore is that kind of a country where they do not really have free and fair multi-party elections, but they do have a a liberal rule of law. Or you can have an illiberal democracy, which is really what Viktor Orban declared uh, Hungary was going to be. Uh, He's democratically elected. Nobody contests his legitimacy. He just won a big election a couple of months ago, Uh, but he's dismantling the liberal order. Uh, He's packing the courts. Uh, He is um, dismantling the press. Uh, He's reducing the scope of personal freedom. And so that's a case where democracy is being used to actually undermine liberalism. My book, I wrote about the threats to liberalism because I think that's really the thing that goes first. Uh, Most people don't contest the idea that the people should be in the driver's seat. Even the Chinese would say that they're democratic because they're doing what the people want, even if there are no elections. Uh, What's much more problematic is liberal constraints on power because, you know, most populists, when they come to power, say, well, the people elected me. I'm expressing their will directly. Here's a judge that's standing in my way. Here's Here's a journalist that's criticizing me. And I don't want these people to prevent me from implementing the people's will. And I think that's been the really serious threat. And you see this in the United States. Uh, uh, you know, that's the biggest country that you left off of that list where this was exactly the thrust of you know the Trump presidency. He was legitimately elected, but he then spent all of his time trying to dismantle as many of the lib- liberal uh, checks and balances. And, you know, eventually, I think the erosion of liberalism also leads to an erosion of democracy, because that's exactly what happened in the U.S. He didn't accept his loss in the election, and then he conspired, as we now can see pretty clearly from the January 6th committee uh, hearings, to basically prevent a peaceful transfer of power after November 2020. Hungary has been going through something like that. Fidesz, the ruling party of Viktor Orban, Uh, has done extensive gerrymandering, has prevented other parties from really organizing. They don't get equal airtime to make their case. And so it's really the liberal institutions 
that are the canary in the coal mine when you have this erosion of liberal democracy. So the thing that makes me think about this, and, and it's where I want to bring in our two main case studies, if we shall call them that for this discussion, which in this instance is Taiwan, because we have an entity here which is as much a liberal democracy as you can be, but it's not a nation state. At least it's not recognized by everybody, well, most countries in the world and the United Nations as a liberal, a liberal uh, a nation state. But it is a liberal democracy and far more of a functioning one, arguably one of the best in the world. Um, Freedom House Index, again, ranks it as one of the most uh, prime examples of a liberal uh, and free state. So how much in your mind does the role of the nation state play in that. And I ask that because we are in a phase where under globalization, right, nation states have been the prevailing way that we construct society. Globalists, then we've got, but the the, the idea of skepticists, regionalists is growing. I believe myself a bit more of a transformationalist. These are all ideas for our listeners about how nation states exist, how society is constructed around the world, whether you have borders, whether you have regions, whether you have specifically countries, nationalism, that sort of thing. And transformationalists are the idea that nation states are adjusting to the current world order, just to contextualize that. So I'm just curious, in the context of Taiwan and this, they have, again, one of the best functioning liberal democracies in the world, but it's not a nation state. And that, that seems to be part of the problem if you get where I'm coming from, or do you not? You don't think it is as relevant. Well, the, I would say the problem in the case of Taiwan is different because both the Republic of China and the People's Republic of China have agreed that China is one country and that you know there's not a separate sovereignty. The nationalists on Taiwan kept asserting for many years that they were actually the only true representative of the whole of China. And obviously the Chinese Communist Party you know, makes the same claim. And that's really the the source of the problem because Chinese, uh, uh, mainland China has gotten more and more powerful and now they are increasingly in a position to forcibly reunify uh, the society. So it's not a theoretical question about nation states. I mean, it's because everybody agrees that actually there is this funny status where Taiwan is not recognized and doesn't think of itself as an independent nation. There are only parts of the DPP and, you know, certain more extreme groups on Taiwan that actually want Taiwanese independence. But that is not the majority opinion on the island. What they do want is for China not to do anything unilaterally and not to use force. Uh, And that was the agreement, you know, that uh, the cross-straits agreement that came out of the recognition of China in the early 19. Uh, 70s. And so I, I think this is not an argument about nation states. It's, it's really something that's quite unique to the, to the ambiguous status of, you know, of the island of Taiwan. That leads me to a follow-up for that. And I think it's a question that a lot of people will be wondering, which is in the past uh, several weeks, given the intensification with Ukraine, and in the last few years, to be fair, um, the idea of Cold War 2.0, new Cold War, is is very much on the on the eyes of many. Now, some don't necessarily think it is a Cold War. Others, like um, Dmitry Albovich, who I, I respect greatly, um, and Michael Kaufman, who I actually think is listening with us right now. You know, some others do think it's a Cold War, but albeit with different elements. You know, I'm just curious for your take. Do you do you see it as a new Cold War with perhaps different dynamics, or do you think it is? Uh, a case of which it's just too different to say because it's not bipolarity, it's multipolarity, or or how do you how do you define it? 
yeah, I'm not sure whether this semantic distinction between Cold War, not Cold War, is actually the most meaningful way to think about it. You know, I do think that Biden is correct in saying that, you know, the world is dividing into camps over the question of democracy, liberal democracy. You know, if you think about it, why should China particularly like Hungary? You know, because Hungary is kind of a right-wing, you know, quasi-fascist country and China still claims to be socialist. So in terms of the old ideological division, that doesn't mean anything. But they both don't like the kind of Western liberalism, you know, from different perspectives. And so I do think that there is a division, you know, in camps. And again, Iran is in the anti-democratic camp, but it's a theocracy. And so it doesn't share the same ideology with Russia or China. And yet, they all seem to be collaborating with one another. Uh, so I do think that, you know, you've got this this realignment on the basis of ideas. You know, in, in what's worrisome about the current situation is that you actually have a war going on. In the Cold War, we actually didn't have, you know, we had proxy wars, but, uh, you know, the kind of conflict that's going on in, in Ukraine right now, uh, right at the border, you know, within Europe is something we didn't see. I wrote my PhD dissertation many years ago about Soviet foreign policy in the Middle East. And the basic, the bottom line of the thesis was that the Soviets were extremely cautious mm -hmm. about deploying military force beyond their borders. They threatened to intervene on six different occasions in different Middle Eastern crises, but they never once did it. They always, always waited until after the crisis had really peaked and they didn't actually have to carry through on their threats. Putin has blown that whole thesis out of the out of the water because he's intervened in Venezuela and Syria in Ukraine he's used force uh, overtly um Crimea uh Georgia much more recklessly than any soviet leader did and so that actually puts us in a very different kind of world where the use of force has in a way become routinized and one of the very irresponsible things i think that a lot of russians are doing you know, these talking heads on Moscow TV is actually normalizing nuclear war. You know, they talk about, well, mm -hmm. why don't we just why don't we just nuke Berlin and Paris and show the West, you know, who's who's really boss? Of course they're not going to do that. But it breaks this really important norm that we've had really ever since the end of the Second World War that you don't even threaten, you you don't even you don't talk like that because everybody appreciates, you know, what the dangers of escalation to that level are. And so in that respect, uh, we're in a worse situation than the Cold War because there are actually big actors out there that are using that, uh, that kind of rhetoric. I think that, you know, the connection to China and Taiwan really comes through that axis. It's not an ideological thing. It's, you know, the demonstration that a great power can use overt military force to achieve kind of a long-standing revanchist goal. Uh, you know, that's the precedent that Putin is setting. And if he gets away with it, you know, I think it's going to be pretty bad for the world as a whole because there are a lot of people that have claims. I mean, you just saw, you know, a very small version of that flare-up between Serbia and Kosovo in the, mm -hmm. past, uh, in the past week. And I think it's that kind of norm, that norm erosion, that I think is the most troubling 
and and thinking about that, I think, is a more useful way than to say, well, is it the Cold War or not the Cold War? Because, yeah, I mean, it's it's different from the Cold War. In some ways, it's worse. In some ways, it's better. But I think we, you know, we ought to focus co- concretely on what are the unique dangers that are now, you know, appearing in 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 this time period. Absolutely. Uh, so, Professor Fukuyama, this leads me to, you, you touched upon it, revisionist. You know, we have this war, which is frankly, for me, arguably, a symbolism of autoc- autocracy versus democracy in many ways, because depending upon the extent that the West goes in to support Ukraine, that could be the difference between uh, Russia taking just Ukraine and then Moldova and then Georgia and then potentially the Baltics. And so you have to you have to draw a line somewhere. But the problem is, this has a negative repercussion in the sense of the the sentiment it builds within the United States. There are plenty of people who are pretty, you know, on the fence or anti the idea of America getting involved in any way, shape or form, be it sending arms or directly engaging with Russia uh, through NATO. So, you know, how do we balance this um, of what John Eikenberry and others, you know, push for liberal interventionism versus uh, ensuring um, that we don't uh, cost our, our domestic, you know, it's the same in the UK and in, in, in Europe. How do we balance this sort of responsibility of standing up for the norms and values that we seek to protect, but also ensuring that we don't alienate our own domestic populations and, and therefore well, jeopardize our own democracy? Well, sense. first of all, I think the, the, the more critical population is in Europe, not in the United States, because they're much more dependent on Russian uh, gas and oil than we are. I mean, we're actually doing great exporting LNG to Europe uh, as a result of this. Um, uh, and I think that the real question is whether the pressure from Italy, especially if they get a new right-wing government, you know, Germany uh, and, and France will start to grow again over the winter as um, uh, as the shortages of energy uh, really begin to kick in. Uh, here in the United States, I don't think that it's quite that critical. I, I think actually the support for Ukraine has been remarkably strong. I mean, uh, you know, the Senate just voted yesterday 95 to 1 to let in Sweden and, and, and Finland. Uh, and, you know, it's actually been one of the big areas of bipartisan agreement that we would support Ukraine. However, both in Europe and in the United States, that support is going to be completely dependent on the perception of military momentum. Uh, If it looks like the war is settling down into a stalemate that will persist for a long time, like the frozen conflict that started, you know, in the Donbass in in 2014, then pressure is going to build inevitably, you know, to get a ceasefire, let Putin have part of Ukraine, uh, just get the war uh, uh, stopped, and then, you know, energy flowing again. On the other hand, if there seems to be real momentum where the Ukrainians uh, can make progress, you know, if they can retake Kherson and then start expelling the Russians from the south um, uh, of their country, then, you know, I think Western politicians will be able to argue uh, they actually can expel the Russians. They they can be militarily successful. Just hold on for one winter, and if we get through this, we'll you know uh, we'll be in a in a much better position. So that's what I think is is really critical right now. 
I think, you know, anybody that suggests a negotiation right now is crazy. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not going to buy peace. Uh, you know, if, if you let Putin take what he's grabbed already, you know, that's not going to satisfy him. He'll just rearm and the moment he thinks he can get away with it, the war will start again. And so that's really not going to buy you anything. So a lot really does depend on the ability of external military assistance to allow the Ukrainians uh, to regain uh, military momentum uh, against Russia in the South, to get their ports unblockaded, to start exporting, you know, all the grain and agricultural goods that they've got bottled up there, uh, that sort of thing. Let's say we reach a point where this war is, well, I mean, you could say it is It is reaching a, a tipping point. This this momentum we've seen the Ukrainians gathering in Kherson, um, the admittance by the Russian central bank uh, that the economy is in in a pretty bad way. Um, what then does that mean for the uh, the Russians if the economy implodes? What do we think about? Um, well, I'll reframe it this way. So another person that I asked a similar question a few years ago when I was in DC, uh, I was speaking to uh, John Mearsheimer, and you know he's obviously had a lot of backlash for his perspectives on the war and the sort of blaming pretty much entirely on the West for this. Um, and that they are the arbitrator of what is now happening, or at least in the context of Crimea as well. Um, and I asked him, because uh, my background is I am Russian and English, so I'm a bit of a weird mixture of the two sides. Um, and I asked him, what would it take to bring the Russians on the side? And he said it was simply the rise of China. Now, that's a very uh, you know unsurprising answer from him. But if we're in a situation now where Russia is well, basically a vassal state to China, what then? How do we how do we manage with the fact that we've got a, a Chinese economy that is basically able to probably ensure a supply of energy to secure its needs and and wants? Uh, how does the West manage that? How do we counterbalance? Uh, well, I don't know. You know, I, I've known John ever since uh, graduate school, and I don't know. He he really drives me crazy, and he's really. <laughs> been infuriating uh, this past year in these arguments over Ukraine, because I think his blaming everything on NATO expansion is just ridiculous. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. we've been having this argument for years and years, and I think that, you know, (laughs) I'm not sure that anything will penetrate, uh, you know, because he's he's got such an e-day fix about this. But the other thing about John is he really starts from a very abstract IR theoretic position and then kind of derives real world policies from that so people may may have forgotten but in the early 1990s he actually thought that we ought to be giving nuclear weapons to ukraine because he thought that that would induce uh, you know stability <laughs> actually he may have been right about that in in retrospect but, you know the argument about china you know maybe that's abstractly correct in a very long period of time that you know, if Russia becomes too dependent on China, they don't see things in the Far East, uh, you know, eye to eye. They've got a lot of rivalries that are right now hidden by their mutual opposition to the United States. But that's all extremely abstract. I mean, right now they're just running towards each other because they really need one another. I mean, especially uh, Russia. But, you know, China also uh, doesn't like the United States. It's got a lot of uh, competitive Uh, things going with the U.S. and, you know, it it wants assistance there as well. So I just think that banking on, 
you know, kind of long-term, you know, this kind of triangular diplomacy with Russia and China is one of those abstract ideas that, that at some point may be a useful way to think about international relations. Right now, I don't think it is. You know, right now, I think doing what the Biden folks are trying to do, which is to just warn China off of providing military assistance uh, to Russia as they fight this war in Ukraine is really what everyone ought to be focused on. And then completely separately, then you got to worry about Taiwan and and how you're going to uh, protect Taiwan. And that's, you know, kind of a parallel but but separate issue. Yeah. So on that very matter, I, you know, for me, I find it frustrating because everybody, understandably, of course, if you're not uh, someone who follows geopolitics or international relations or anything uh, to that degree in depth, but is the immediate comparison and overlapping sort of associations between these two um, files. And I don't know if you would agree. Again, I'm going to make it quite a crude um, summary, but you could uh, argue, I think, that largely they are driven by, you know, both are quite, as in China and Russia, are both revisionist, expansionist uh, states with a degree of a desire to rekindle a former glory day with, you know, pretty autocratic, self-centralized uh, command structures, uh, albeit the actual method by which the, the Chinese would have to undertake an occupation and ultimately secure and hold Taiwan is inherently different to that of Ukraine. Um, you know, it's a it's an island for a, for a start. The Strait is one of the bus- busiest shipping lanes in the world, about five and a half trillion dollars of trade per year using a navy that we haven't ever really seen actually in well usage. We've made all sorts of assessments about the Russian military before we saw it in now we know the reality of just, well, how incompetent it is. Why do we say, why do we see these associations made so much? And if the uh, Chinese do seem to want to take some kind of occupation towards Taiwan, do we, do we find it helpful to draw such parallels between that and how all other autocratic states engage in well, such status? So I don't think the parallels are particularly helpful because, you know, the military balance is very, very different and the military challenges in the two theaters are really different from one another. The, the one thing that I think is useful that's come out of all of this is to actually think seriously about what a war in East Asia would look like. Uh, this is something that's been bugging me way before Ukraine happened, that you know, during the Cold War, we had a lot of theorizing about escalatory ladders arising out of a NATO-Warsaw Pact war. And the whole thing, you know, the whole concept of limited or extended deterrence, you know, was a result of thinking about where you would put fire breaks in, you know, if the Russians grabbed Hamburg, what would you do in response? If it's straight across the North German plain, you know, what would that look like? If it starts somewhere else, you know, how would we respond? And so there are a lot of canonical scenarios that we spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, and how a war might escalate. And therefore, you know, if you want to stop that from happening, you got to think concretely about what a war is going to look like. And the worry that I've had about East Asia is that although, you know, at U.S. Indo-PACCOM, they're obviously gaming this stuff out, there's been very little discussion uh, in the expert community about what a war in that region is going to look like and what how you would want to try to limit a, a war. Because 
if you actually have war in East Asia, it's going to be a total disaster. I mean, the, the stakes are incredibly high, but the destructive potential is also unbelievably high. You know, Jim Stravitas, uh, the, the former admiral, wrote this book, uh, 2035, which mm-hmm. tries to imagine what a what an actual war uh, with China would look like. And it's pretty... It's you know it's 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 pretty sobering you know so let me just give you a, a concrete example if the Chinese simply try a limited cross straits amphibious invasion of Taiwan that poses one set of challenges uh, the United States uh, you know the bulk of its power is actually not in its navy it's not the aircraft carriers which are probably going to have to be withdrawn from the theater because they're too vulnerable. But they're the land-based aircraft, you know, in Kadena mm-hmm. and in Japan and Korea that, you know, have some chance of getting into the theater. And if you're a Chinese planner, you know, one of your big options is to preemptively take out those air bases. There was a RAND study that was done several years ago showing how the existing Chinese MRBM uh, inventory could actually do a really effective job in disabling virtually every uh, American airbase across, you know, the the Western Pacific. If the Chinese launch that kind of uh, attack, so what's it going to be? I mean, what are we expecting? You know, are we expecting a Chinese preemption, or are we expecting a much more limited kind of attack? You know, given these different paths, you know, how do we respond? How do we keep this thing limited? How do we deter escalation? You know, to the next level. There's obviously nuclear weapons involved at some point that we're going to have to really uh, worry about. And, you know, we just have not been thinking seriously about a lot of this stuff. And therefore, we're not going to be prepared, you know, if the balloon actually goes up. So the one thing that I think might be actually useful, even coming out of Nancy Pelosi's visit and all these exercises now that the Chinese are doing, is that, you know, the idea of the possibility of an actual war in this theater might actually now be vivid enough in people's minds that they may say to themselves, hey, maybe we ought to think this through. If we're going to prevent this sort of thing from happening, we got to at least envision how it could happen and, you know, what the real balance of forces is. And so, you know, that's the connection I see. I mean, you know, um, Putin has kind of broken this norm. You know, there had been this norm of silence in the room about just overt cross-border aggression as a way of getting your political objectives. And so now he's done that. And so now everybody's looking around saying, okay, great powers, that seems to be on the table for them. Of course, we did it you know, ourselves in Iraq and other places, but uh, we weren't expecting Russia and China to do that, but now they've, they've taken that step. Uh, and let's start thinking seriously about, you know, if they want to do this elsewhere, what's that going to look like and how are we going to prepare for it? By the way, this does not imply that I think that we necessarily ought to go whole hog in, you know, in terms of responding to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. That is one of the most difficult decisions I think any national authority will ever take in the United States, you know, how, how to deal with something like that, because the costs of that are, are, are really going to be horrendous. But, you know, it's something I do think that we have needed to think about and we haven't been thinking about it. And now maybe, you know, we're going to take it a little bit more seriously. So a lot there and you just make me have more questions. But one of them is this idea that um, 
I think we might have a problem where if the United States and its allies doesn't respond in a enough of a proactive way, if they choose sort of inaction, largely speaking, or through words, first and foremost, I mean, even today, the United States, uh, the White House produced a statement condemning uh, the use of uh, China's uh, missile launches, which, you know, um, encroached on Japanese territorial waters. And they simply said, you know, we urge them to refrain from doing that. Now, is that the White House being putting its the head in the sand? Is it the United States simply trying to do what it did with um, Putin when he l- raised the nuclear alert to a new level and simply just sort of like, OK, we've acknowledged you, but we're not going to follow suit? Um, or, or, or is it, um, you know, that's that's actually what the US should do, which is use more of its diplomacy. Where, how do we balance this sort of because no matter what the uh, any US administration does, it's going to be criticised for either doing too much, too little. Uh, and in the case of Taiwan, you know, what is the best strategy? How do you find that balance? Well, I don't have a strong opinion about, you know, the stuff that's gone on in the last 24 hours and whether it's too much or too little, because you know, basically shooting some missiles over Taiwan is not the same thing as grabbing Crimea. Uh, you know, there I think we did make a big mistake in in not being much more forceful uh, in, in our response. You know, whether this is the right response in this particular case, that's a pretty complicated thing because, you know, by being too proactive, you can also trigger more of what you don't want. And so, you know, you got to be a little bit uh, cautious. So I don't, I don't have a strong feeling about that. What I do believe is what I just told you, which is that we have not been seriously addressing the question of, you know, the 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 lengths we were we will be willing to go uh, to defend Taiwan militarily. You know, we have been having this argument with Taiwan because one of the big problems over the last ten, fifteen years is they have not been doing enough in their own defense. Uh, that has several dimensions to it. They ended conscription uh, a few years ago, which I think was a crazy decision uh, on their part and one that they will come to uh, regret because, you know, one of the things that saved Ukraine is that they actually have conscription and they got a big cadre of their own citizens that are really willing to fight on their behalf. And it's just not clear that you've got anything like that in, in Taiwan's case. And you know, the United States is not going to pull all their chestnuts out of the fire if they're not willing to, you know, fight for themselves. There's also this issue, you know, that they tend to want to buy these high-end, very high-tech, expensive weapons systems. And, you know, a lot of times our military doesn't think that that's, the, that's what's going to be the most useful if the balloon really does go up. Again, I don't have a very developed position on this, but, you know, these are very concrete and important issues that need a lot more uh, thought and attention. And I would focus, you know, less on, well, should we have issued a stronger day march, you know, 24 hours ago? I mean, I, I think that that's a less important issue than kind of this longer and sort of medium to longer term planning. And finally, it, it does involve, you know, this question of exactly making clear to ourselves how far we're willing to go uh, in defense of the island. So, okay, I've got a a few more questions. You mentioned you said something similar. I was listening to um, some of your points that you made at the um, Taipei School of Economics and Political Science Foundation earlier this year. And you're talking about China as a far bigger threat than Russia. That's no surprise. But 
the same time, China does have quite a few domestic issues. The remnants of the one-child policy, um, its economic um, lopsidedness, debt crisis, the fact that it does have multiple fronts, you could say, where it is destabilization, Northwest, North Korea, Taiwan now. China's not impervious. And do you not think it's something that if the United States could position itself correctly with the strongest thing I believe it has, which is its alliance network, be able to, uh, I don't believe a containment grand strategy would be the best way. You can't contain China. But do, do you not see that there is there are a lot of issues that China has that would I don't see why it would undertake a, a, an occupation to Taiwan, at least in the immediate term, because it's just not it doesn't have the economic position to do so yet. It's, it's not like it's hunky-dory. There's, there's quite a lot of issues it has to face. Or am I... Am I... Well, um, so if they wanted to take Taiwan and they're really determined to do it, they could do it. I, I don't think there's much uh, uh, question about that. The issue, however, is that they are relatively risk-averse, and that's something we should all be grateful for. You know, I was talking about Putin breaking all of these norms that had been established by the old Soviet leadership. He is a just a monumental risk-taker, reckless risk-taker. Chinese leadership, you know, uh, fortunately is not. Uh, and and uh, I don't think that they would take anything like the decisions that Putin has taken uh, in the last few years, you know, as a two-edged sword in a way, because it it may simply mean that they're keeping their powder dry waiting for the moment when they actually can move at a much lower level of risk because they're much more powerful. So that that's something we've got to keep in mind. But I don't think that they're really eager to, you know, disrupt the global economy and all the supply chains and their own internal prosperity, you know, by launching a big military adventure kind of in, in, the, in the short run. Uh, however, I also don't think that you know, all of the weaknesses, potential weaknesses that you mentioned are real ones. I mean, the real estate market in China has been very dodgy and it's getting, you know, more so. And there's all sorts of things that could go wrong in their banking system and, and so forth. But as a strategist, you, you just can't count on any of that stuff uh, happening. I mean, you know, it may play out in five years, but it may play out in 30 years. And if it's in 30 years... You know, it's completely irrelevant to any of the short-term uh, diplomacy or strategy that, that you're going to have to es uh, uh, execute. And therefore, I think that, you know, you got to realize China is not this unstoppable juggernaut. They do have these weaknesses that are going to limit their ability to throw their weight around, but they have a lot of weight. And you got to deal with that realistically in, in, in the short run. So I guess that's the way I would think about that, that set of kind of short-term versus longer, medium to long-term considerations. Okay. And a couple more questions, and then I'm going to um, uh, open it up to some uh, other speakers. Okay. So another prominent voice here on Twitter, um, and someone who I've been following with interest, is um, is Paul Massaro. And I saw an interesting tweet from him just a few days ago about the idea of encouraging um, Australia, Japan, and South Korea to be uh, welcomed into NATO, which was interesting thought for me. Um, but then it made me wonder, why don't we just try and reactivate or recreate something like Seattle of the 1970s? What's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, this is, um, this is an idea that has keeps coming up. In fact, I wrote an article um, back in the 2000s about how 
you know, the five plus one uh, talks or whatever they were regarding uh, North Korea ought to evolve into a kind of quasi-alliance of countries that were threatened by uh, North Korea. The problem is multiple. I mean, first of all, connecting this to NATO is, is just impossible because, you know, you got these two separate theaters. Article 5 guarantee means that you're going to go to war with China if they do something to Taiwan. You know, you think that North Macedonia is going to go to war with China over, you know, it's, it's just not realistic. But the real reason that you haven't had the equivalent of a uh, of a East Asian NATO is basically two of the most powerful allies of the United States, uh, Japan and, and South Korea, hate each other. Uh, and, you know, the degree of non-communication and non-cooperation strategically between those two countries is really shocking. You know, in a period when you've got a rising China where they've got a clear strategic interest in working uh, closely with one another. Now that you've got a conservative president in South Korea, maybe things will move a little bit more in that direction. But, you know, for a lot of the last 20 years, I've been more interested in, in kind of fighting each other than actually figuring out concrete ways to, to collaborate. And if you don't have South Korea and Japan on board, you know, together cooperating, you know, a larger East Asian equivalent of NATO uh, simply isn't going to work. And so that's why we've had this hub and spoke system where you've just got this collection of bilateral defense agreements, you know, with Australia, with Japan, with Korea, and so forth. And the United States kind of remains the, you know, the critical uh, linchpin in that, in that system, but it's simply never going to be the kind of multilateral organization that, uh, that NATO is. The other I mean, the, the thing that's actually comparable about the two theaters is that both Japan and Germany, having been the big aggressors in World War II, you know, were then turned into these pacifist states that really do not want to take a leadership role, and certainly not a military leadership role in their regions, even though the world has changed so dramatically that, you know, it's really called for. In Europe, you know, the United States plays that role of organizing everybody, and pretty much the same thing in uh, in East Asia, but you know, again, you've got this reluctance of you know the the, the most powerful uh, U.S. ally in the region really being quite reticent, more reticent than Germany in in terms of rearming itself. So you mentioned multilateralism, and you just triggered my brain for another tag on question before my final main one, which is. What about minilateralism then? This concept that hasn't been around ages and the AUKUS deal of last year, the trilateral agreement, just as arbitrary quick examples of the British, the Ukrainians, the Polish, the um, Three Seas Initiative, the 12, you know, former Soviet states in Europe. These sorts of things are, are a growing, the quad, uh, the growing examples of countries shifting arguably away from the big grandiose methods of the AU, the UN um, and so on. What about that? As a method, yeah, no, that's do. fine. I think. Oh, that's you think a that's a more idea. feasible method? Okay. Yeah, I mean that's much more realistic. I I had this. Um, I wrote a book after the Iraq War in which I talked about the need for what I called multi multilateralism, right? In, instead of putting all your eggs in a in a UN basket, you know, you ought to have a flexible system where you've got different kinds of multilateral organizations that can respond to different kinds of regional and global you know, challenges. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's about as 
good as we're going to do. And I think that's a good, you know, it's a good way to proceed. Interesting. Okay. My very last question is a little bit more academic. Not, I'm not going to make it too much, but it's just something my my focus in my studies and, and just generally my biggest fascination is brand strategy, great power politics. So, you know, I, I mentioned containment before, but then there are other types, you know, primacy, uh, cooperative security, selective engagement, neo-isolationism, or interesting one that I came across, which I hadn't really encountered much before, was offshore balancing. Um, I'm just curious not so much only a grand strategy to deal with other countries, but a grand strategy for itself, if that makes sense. What is the way that the United States should take its way itself forward in the next five to 10 years as we try and find a way to work with China on, say, climate change, as they agreed in COP26 almost a year ago with that joint declaration, but also things that they're never going to agree on? What, how, do we, how do we go from here? in a grand strategic sense, if that's not too grand. Well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that uh, thinking in terms of grand strategy is, isn't, you know, more of a straitjacket than a useful way of organizing your thinking about how you want to shape the world. Uh, certainly containment, you know, was a two-edged sword. I mean, the main advantage of a concept like containment is really a domestic one. Right, you want to go to Congress and argue why they should fund a big def uh, a defense budget and why they should support NATO allies and, and that sort of thing. And so containment becomes a way of talking about how you plan to do that. And I think you know that's got a certain utility. But in practice, during the Cold War, it meant that we were finding communists under every bed, including a lot of beds where there actually weren't any communists. Uh, and swatting down, you know, perceived threats because we had this abstract view of what the challenge posed by global communism was. And I think that misled us in, in, in many cases. Uh, and that's a, you know, that's kind of the downside of having a grand strategy is that it forces you to take a kind of messy world and, and, and try to force it into a, a pre-existing conceptual mold that, you know, may not be Appropriate. So I guess it doesn't really bother me that we don't have a grand strategy. It does seem to me the world is kind of messy and complex, and it really depends on the region. And it may be better, you know, uh, since you've got actually multiple threats and multiple theaters, maybe, you know, you don't want a single strategic concept to govern how you're going to deal with the whole rest of the world. But is that not because... Um we can't establish whether we're in a bipolar world again or a multipolar one um, because policymakers are inherently bad at communicating foreign policy to domestic audiences. Surely there needs to be a better way well, it's of not, making it's not a, it's not a, accessible, no? It's, it's not a communications problem. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a reality problem, you know. Mm. Uh, we are living in a world that in some cases is looking increasingly bipolar, but in other cases is pretty clearly multipolar. And I, I, I just think that forcing yourself to put on a, a kind of conceptual straitjacket where you decide it's one or the other, it, it, you know, just may not be all that helpful. Fair enough. Thank you very much. I now need to go back and uh, relearn much of my studies because I've always been fascinated by the theory, but uh, I appreciate your points very much. All right. Um, OPSEC, I'd like to go to you first. 
Yeah. So you were talking about John Mersheimer and I know, you know, his theories have gained a lot of attention since the 2020 invasion of Ukraine and through his lens, revisionist powers as they rise, uh, conflict between them and the status quo powers and their allies is essentially inevitable. But to me, designing policy around that assumption seems to play into a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy by building policy around, um, something like the inevitable um, or inevitability of conflict, you seem to be triggering that security dilemma or preparing yourself for an arms race. What do you think we can do to sort of mitigate this risk? And more specifically, uh, with such different cultures and ideologies, what role do you think perception plays um, and how can perception be used to mitigate those risks? I think that I, I, I tried to say this earlier, you know, John uh, Mearsheimer thinks of himself as a realist or a neo-realist or whatever the term of art is currently. And I think there's a real problem in thinking about these issues too abstractly because, you know, realism is a reductionist theory that says everybody is in this security dilemma. Power is really the only coin of the realm that's really meaningful. It's the distribution of power that brings stability or not. Uh, and those are the factors that you've got to look at. And I just think that reality is different. I mean, obviously, power is is critical in, in assessing a system. But, you know, the security dilemma is very different uh, if you are facing, you know, let's say a Britain intervening in South Africa during the Boer War or Hitler intervening in, you know, Poland in 1939. Uh, because ideas, ideology, nationalism, you know, a lot of these very powerful domestic forces uh, very much shape the way that uh, nations behave. And so uh, in, you know, the case of Hitler, and I think in the case of Putin today, uh, there are very unlimited aims in terms of wanting to basically overturn the existing national uh, international order reabsorb, you know, several big countries that had broken off from the former Soviet Union, uh, just the way that Hitler wanted to gather all the Germans together. And that's something that is pretty hard to appease. Uh, you can stop it militarily, but it's not clear that you can negotiate very successfully with a, a, another power that thinks that way. On the other hand, you know, most powers are not like that. Most powers actually do have relatively limited aims. And if you raise the cost to them enough, then they're going to sit down and say, okay, well, let's scale back uh, our aims and, and you know, uh, look for something different. And then you're not in this inevitable downward spiral, spiral into war. Uh, and so this is why I just think that thinking about this in theoretical terms too abstractly really makes you dumber than you should be because you actually have a lot more information uh, about the nature of the contending uh you know, powers that are fighting with one another. Uh, I think that, you know, in, in the specific case of Ukraine, John is just completely wrong about Russian motives because he kind of assumes that they're this, you know, this great power of IR, of realist IR theory uh, and not a country that's got all of these deep resentments, uh, wounded national pride, this, you know, hankering, nostalgic hankering uh, to recreate the kind of glory that, you know, the Soviet, former Soviet Union uh, represented. And, 
you can negotiate with, you know, the former abstraction, and it's pretty hard to negotiate with, you know, what I think is the reality of Russia today. Uh, so that's, I think, what the what the you know what the real issue is. Thank you, um, Obsek. Okay, let's get to uh, another member of the of the size community of the Foreign Policy Institute, Anita Kellogg. Anita, it's lovely to see you. I'd love to go to you for your question. Yes, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity. So I wanted to know about, um, there's so much cynicism now about the idea of the liberal order. So for, I don't want to go to Mersheimer directly because he's so, such an easy foil, but just in general, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine and to some extent China's actions has caused a lot of people to think that the liberal order, as we set it up after World War II, or, or the values and aims is naive, and that maybe we've been tying our hands uh, in, instead of being able to deal with these countries. And so what do you think about the potential problems? Do you think that they're valid? Or or do you think that this is something we should continue to to uh, ascertain to? And relatedly, what do you think about Biden's democracy initiatives? I think that we made one big mistake with regard to China and the liberal order. And I have to admit that it's something that I bought into that I think now is wrong, which actually is based on kind of classic modernization theory. Uh, in the 1990s, as China was opening up, joining the international order, you know, a lot of people, uh, beginning with Bill Clinton, argued that as they got richer, you develop a middle class, you have better educated people, there'll be greater demand for, if not democracy, at least for a more liberal internal Chinese order. Uh, and, uh, you know, therefore, China's integration into the global economy uh, would bring about domestic change in China that would be to our benefit and that they would become more like us. And that clearly has not happened. So that version of modernization theory was wrong. You know, maybe it'll prove to be right in a very long time period. But after 2013 and the accession of Xi Jinping, he put China into a reverse position. And I think it's taken us a little bit too long to figure that out. You know, we, we should have realized that, uh, you know, this things weren't going to work out uh, the way they were. There's probably a little bit of, you know, hope uh, for something similar going on with Russia, uh, that they could be made part of a larger uh, European security order, and that um, you know that 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 would um, then bring peace. And I think that was a clearer just mistake. And in fact, the Russians were giving much clearer signs of what they were about by, you know, by. Uh, taking over Crimea by invading Georgia, you know, so forth. And there we definitely should have reacted much more, uh, much more vigorously. And, and there was a lot of naivete uh, involved. Uh, on the question of Biden's democracy, I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's complicated. I, I think that he's right that that's the way that the world is increasingly divided and organized. It's very important that democracies support one another. Uh, whether his his specific initiative is actually going to lead anywhere, I'm not sure. We tried the community of democracies in the late 1990s, and that turned out to be, you know, not a very successful organization. So 
I, I guess I don't have a lot of hope that that's going to develop in a, you know, in a in a terribly meaningful direction. I'm going well, to ask the devil's advocate question here. So, you know, I don't agree with Mirsheimer's perspective wholeheartedly, of course not. But do you not think that the West's slight hubris, the slight degree of hypocrisy, particularly in the context of Russia, just for this example, is not part of the problem? The the the, the presumption that they would have joined um, uh, the the order in the way that the West wanted them to, uh, and perhaps had they done a better job of engaging the Russians on NATO more than just simply the founding act or uh, the NATO um, Russian council, do you not think that that would have helped avert or it's just a case of it was never going to work as soon as Putin got into office? Well, you know, these are all speculations on counterfactuals that we don't really understand. So I am perfectly willing to accept the fact that the United States acted with a lot of hubris and did a lot of really dumb things. Like back in 2008, I was not in favor of offering NATO membership to Georgia and Ukraine. Uh, you know, and the reason that I didn't like that idea was I take the Article 5 guarantee seriously. I think that that's the essence of NATO. And I just didn't think that, you know, we were serious about actually providing military support for either one of those countries. It was simply a matter of military logistics that, you know, made it very difficult um, uh, to do that. And, you know, it was an unnecessary provocation to Russia. I do not believe that in itself that's what really motivated, you know, all the subsequent events. But I do think, you know, if you don't have to poke the bear, don't poke the bear. You know, So uh, that's true. The other, you know, the other thing that I think was a really bad, foreign policy mistake was the invasion of Iraq. Uh, that could not have happened during the Cold War because Iraq was a Soviet client and we would have worried too much about uh, escalation and getting into a, you know, a dust up with the Soviet Union directly if we had done that. But with the weakening of or the collapse of the Soviet Union and, you know, its apparent withdrawal from the Middle East, we thought we could just reorder that region, you know, unilaterally. And that was an act of hubris. We didn't know what we were doing. We actually made things worse in many respects um, uh, and spawned a lot of instability. And so, uh, and, and furthermore, a lot of those chickens are coming home to roost now because when we complain about the Russians, uh, you know, unilaterally using force uh, across international borders, uh, you get this very easy whataboutism, you know, what about Iraq? Didn't you do that in Iraq? And, you know, I do think there is a, there's an answer to that, but it's not a, you know, it's not a very convincing one to very many people in the world. No, I agree. I, I think whataboutism is a bit of a get out of sometimes. Um, okay, um, as we begin to wrap down for this um, amazing discussion, um, I want to get to um, Michael, and then I'm going to land with Jacob. So, Michael, please. Professor, it seems like one of your most notable pieces of writing specifically about the war in Ukraine. By the way, this is, this is Michael Kaufman. Uh, no, no, this is, no, this is um, Michael Bond. Michael Kaufman wasn't able to join us, unfortunately. Michael's oh, okay. uh, helping me co-host. Yeah, okay, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I will try to live up to uh, my namesake. Um, <laughs> Uh, so it seems like your most notable writing, uh, specifically on the war in Ukraine, was an article from March that was titled uh, Preparing for Defeat. I, I had maybe two questions from that. One was uh, you had said you thought that Ukraine could win and that it was possible that Russia could collapse and potentially such a collapse could happen quickly or unexpectedly. 
I just wanted to give you an opportunity uh, to update whether you think those are still possibilities um, based on what you've seen since then. And since it seems like you're following things on the ground, uh, if you, you know, you had said in that article, you were sticking your neck out. If you wanted to do that again, I'd be curious if you have any um, thoughts on likelihood of, uh, of outcome. So that, so that was question one. And then question two is, um, since it was entitled preparing for defeat, the idea was preparing for the potential of a new birth of freedom. And I'm wondering how you f- uh, feel that the liberal democracies that are supporting Ukraine have done to this point in preparing to either uh, embrace a new birth of freedom or, you know, have to bolster liberalism in the event of a frozen conflict or or not as positive an outcome. Um, so I'd love your thoughts on those. Yeah, well, so I was right about the early stages of the war. I mean, the, the Ukrainians did drive the Russians out of the area north of Kiev and uh, Kharkiv. Uh, and then things bogged down uh, in the Donbass, and we went through this very dispiriting period from mid-April to, you know, the middle of last month, where, you know, there was a big artillery, grinding artillery duel, you know, 100 Ukrainians dying uh, a week. Uh, and that uh, was, you know, not something I expected. Uh, by the way, I have a blog called Frankly Fukuyama on the website of AmericanPurpose.com, and if you want to find my most recent thoughts about any of this stuff, you know, it's, it's all in that blog. And right now, I, I still think that what I said back in early March may still come true, because I do think that there are huge weaknesses in the Russian military position right now. They are scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of manpower. They've lost unbelievable amounts of equipment. Uh, you know, they're throwing conscripts or they're whatever their contract soldiers into this battle with minimal training, very little motivation. Uh, and so I still think it's possible that, uh, you know, a lot of the Russian position in the South could collapse if they managed to cut off, you know, the supply lines to Kherson and to other parts of, uh, of those southern uh, oblasts. And so I do think that it's possible that there could be a big Ukrainian breakthrough. But obviously, that's something I don't know. I, I'm would just speculate about it. I think that the West as a whole has actually done a lot better than anyone would have expected before the war. Of course, there are cracks in the armor. The The biggest one I'm worried about right now is Italy, you know, with the fall of Draghi and the potential, you know, installation of a right-wing populist government there. They're going to be much more pro-Russian than the current um, uh, Italian government, and that's a, a, a big danger. But on the other hand, you know, Sweden and Finland are going to join NATO. And that's, uh, you know, that's, I think, a big uh, achievement. And actually, I, I think that, you know, we'll have to see how the winter goes. But I do think that, you know, there's been more solidarity than I would have expected, certainly before the war began. But even as it continued, you know, I was expecting to see more kind of panic calls for an immediate ceasefire. And it, that may happen, but you know, at the moment it hasn't. So I'm, I'm reasonably happy. And I do think it has reminded a younger generation, you know, really that you got to fight for things every now and then that, you know, you can't just assume that this liberal world order is going to be self-sustaining without putting any uh, effort into it uh, yourself. 
Jacob, I'd love to go to you uh, to take us home, my friend. Thank you, Piotr, and thank you for joining us, Professor Fukuyama. Um, so I kind of wanted to pivot back to one of your earlier points when you were talking about U.S. allies, particularly Germany and Japan. So uh, Germany just passed a defense bill a few months ago now, uh, which really is going to modernize its military, hypothetically, at least financially. Um, and the assassination of, of uh, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Abe in Japan has also kind of re-sparked his, his lifelong dream or, or goal, that is, to make Japan more of a, of a security guarantee or more of a military power in East Asia. So particularly on those two, I was wondering if you think those two countries are serious about their modernization and kind of becoming more of a security provider rather than uh, getting their full security from the United States. And I also just wanted you to comment a little bit, perhaps on how important um, alliances are and U.S. allies are to its strategic competition with China. Because I think that's something that is somewhat underrated. And I think that's probably the U.S.'s greatest strength in its competition with some of these other great powers. Yeah, well, I mean, they're absolutely important. Uh, you know, without Japan and South Korea, the United States wouldn't have a military posture in East Asia, you know, without the bases that they uh, that they provide. Uh, so that's really critical. And conversely, you know, within NATO, Germany is really the big, you know, muscular core of that alliance and of the EU. So it's also... Uh, extremely important. You know, the challenges are, are different. Uh, Abe has been lauded, you know, very much since his assassination, which was a really terrible thing to have happened. There was always this suspicion of him that he came out of this nationalist wing of the LDP that, you know, <laughs> I, I guess to not to put too fine a point on it, a lot of people in that party in the in the on the Japanese nationalist right really aren't that sorry for what they did in in the second world war and you know abe never really fully acted on that he didn't go to yasakuni and do these symbolic things that you know were very provocative to china and south korea you know because i think he actually wanted japan to play a more robust role and in that i think that was a good thing and i think you know, he deserves American support for that. But, you know, there I think the worry was that they'd be a little bit too enthusiastic if they reassumed, you know, a kind of military leadership role in East Asia. German's completely different. I, I, I think, you know, Olaf Scholz comes out of the 68 generation that is deeply pacifist. They cut their teeth on opposing, you know, Hitler and the legacy of German militarism. Uh, and that whole generation is is very deeply kind of imbued with, I mean, they've never really seriously thought about what it means to struggle in a just war, because that just hasn't been part of their mental landscape. Uh, and so there, I think that, you know, you really do need to do a lot of work in, in sort of passing the torch to a younger generation of Germans that, you know, didn't grow up with quite that mindset. Obviously, you also don't want them to snap back to the 1930s. But I think there's zero risk of that happening. I, I think what they need to do is be more like the British or French. We got a military, we're going to use it because we got threats. And, you know, that's uh, that's the role that the Germans are still quite uh, uncomfortable with. Thank you for that, um, Jacob. And uh, Professor, very much for all of that. The last thing I just want to ask you, Professor, apart from if there's any lasting remarks you want us to, to think about, 
is the role of middle powers. Uh, again, a bit theoretical, but I'm quite interested in, there was an article from the Econ Economist about meddling middle powers in the Middle East, namely Turkey, the UAE, um, and that sort of thing. Where do you see the role of countries beyond just great power politics? Because surely they're increasingly more important. And maybe non-state actors like the EU in all of this. Because we always overlook them, I think, when we're focusing on the, you know, obvious players of the great three or the great four or the great two. You know, again, it's, it's very context dependent. I, I think that the EU's problem is that it's not a power. <laughs> it doesn't have its own army. It doesn't have its own foreign policy. Any single one of its members can veto any policy initiative in foreign policy. So Greece, Hungary, you know, they don't want criticism of China, so the EU doesn't criticize China. And that doesn't strike me either as the behavior of a great power or even of a middle power. It's really kind of a no power power. Uh, and I think they need to up their game and, and rejigger their institutions towards a, you know, a, a kind of... Um, more majoritarian voting system within the EU so that they can actually take uh, positions on, on certain, you know, important issues. Middle East is a completely different story. It's a total mess because of the decentralization of power. The reason that to this day the Syrian civil war is not settled is that there are too many outside powers that have a stake in that and they, they basically don't want their local allies to lose and they're going to block any settlement that will you know, be detrimental. And that's really a horrible tragedy for the for the people involved. I mean, I suppose you could say that maybe that's what's prevented a takeover, you know, full claiming of power by Assad backed by Syria and Russia. And maybe that's a good thing. But it also just leaves that whole area in a kind of perpetual kind of boil uh, that you know, where they're not able to resolve some of these big underlying conflicts. And I think that's not a not a good situation. On the other hand, I don't see what you do about it, because, you know, these powers are what they are, and they're going to pursue their own, uh, their own interests as they see fit. Otherwise, um, everybody, uh, Professor, thank you very much for your time. Uh, really do appreciate it, as I say. It's been a, a conversation on the Global Gambit podcast. Uh, I've been your host, Piotr, everybody. Thank you very much uh, again to Jacob for facilitating this, for SICE, the uh, Foreign Policy Institute particularly. And uh, Professor, I wish you uh, a speedy recovery given um, your, your injury. I look forward to seeing uh, future uh, perspectives and thoughts you bring out. As to everybody else listening at home and on the podcast, thank you very much and have a great rest of your evening and right. a week ahead. Take Thanks care. very much for having me. Thank you very much, Professor. It's been an honour and I hope to have you back um, uh, as and when you can. And hopefully right. some of my questions made sense. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Thank you very much. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Right. You were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit, where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at the global gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at the global gambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app 
Listen in in real time and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.